Turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. We are picking up after a long break from uh, the Christmas season. We're getting back into the book of Exodus and returning to the people of God in Egypt in slavery, how God is delivering them. Exodus chapter 7, we're actually going to read quite a bit. It's the beginning of the ten plagues, which I think most people are familiar with. We're going to cover the first three plagues from chapter 7, verse 14, all the way into chapter 8 and verse 19. So it's uh, probably our biggest text to read so far. It's a pretty good story. It moves along pretty quickly. So, uh, again, this is uh, to give background. Egypt has enslaved the Hebrews. There's a bunch of them. There's maybe a million or two of them. And God has sent Moses to set them free. Pharaoh's not listening. So God says, if you won't listen to me, I will get your attention another way. And so he begins a series of plagues and judgments that Moses announces. <clears throat> there was a warning when Moses turned the, uh, the, the, he had a staff and he turned into a snake. That was the first warning. It was very, very light touch for God to say, here's an example of how powerful I am. Uh, but Moses, uh, Pharaoh wouldn't listen to that. So after that, in chapter 7, verse 14, the, God turns the heat up, as it were. And it says in, in chapter 7, verse 14, it says, So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's banks to meet him. And the rod which turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I'll strike the waters which are in the river with a rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. Let's, let's go back a little bit since it's been such a long break. So an overview of the book of Exodus is Exodus is keeping promises to Israel that he'd made hundreds and hundreds of years before. He'd made a promise to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And part of being a great nation involves a couple things, not dying and not being enslaved, right? You can't be a great nation if you don't exist. You can't be a great nation if you're a slave to another country. So now we've got Egypt enslaving the Hebrew people, trying to stop God's plans. And so God says in the book of Exodus, here's how I'm going to fix things. Here's how I'm going to keep those promises by freeing uh, Israel from uh, the, the power of Pharaoh. And so what's set up here is a conflict between not Moses and Pharaoh, but between God and anti-God. It's a very big, big deal. It's a cosmic battle. There's God who made promises and there's anti-God who's trying to stop those promises, and that's Pharaoh. He's never mentioned by name, because we don't care who he was as a person. It's only the position he holds, which is opposing God. Moses is just sort of an in-between guy who's carrying the message back and forth. So when, when God made a promise to Abraham, he, he established a covenant, a formal agreement between Abraham's people and God that says, I will always take care of you. I'll always be there for you. Which sounds great until you get to the book of Exodus, and they're all enslaved. And so what Exodus shows us so far is that the covenant status, the covenant relationship, does not prevent suffering. That being in a relationship with God does not prevent any sort of suffering. And we see that terrible suffering that, Egypt, that uh, Israel had in Egypt. And then another thing we saw was how God is going to undermine the Egyptian power. 
but he's going to use it through weak people. He doesn't bring a more powerful nation to defeat Egypt. He starts out with a group of, with two midwives who basically foil Pharaoh's plan. Then uh, a, a teenage girl. And then Moses, who can't even speak well. So he's using these weak people to undermine the empire, undermine the nation of, of Egypt. Why? Because if a powerful nation defeated Egypt, you could give credit to the powerful nation. But if a group of weak people overthrow Egypt, you can only give power to God. So what God is doing is he's setting up a huge conflict between a powerful nation and himself, and he's saying, you're not that powerful. And I'm going to show you how not powerful you are by using slaves and weak people to undermine your empire. And so the key of the book of of Exodus is back in chapter 5, sort of the hinge of what's good, what God's motivation here. It says in verse five, in chapter 5, when Moses first went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, chapter 5, verse uh, 1, it says, afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And all of us say, that's right, God said this, we should obey God. But Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So, the, here's the hinge. Who is God? Pharaoh didn't know who God was, and he didn't care. And so the hinge, that the, the main question of the book of Exodus, that the book of Exodus answers, is who is God? That's the main question that the whole book answers. Specifically, who is Jehovah? Who is the God of Israel? And so the whole book's answering that, and the, and the miracle, the, the plagues here are the first step in that. So we're going to look at two things today. Who is God and who is man? And the passage deals with both of those. Who is the Lord? And then who is man in response to that? So we see first here with Moses, with, with God revealing himself, showing forth his power. He's answering Pharaoh's question. That's what he says here. So let's continue. In verse 17, it says, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand. They shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die. The river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So they, so he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. That'd be the river Nile, if you weren't familiar with Egypt. And all the rivers of water were turned to blood. And the fish that were in the river died. The river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went to his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. Yes, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Frogs. 
So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into their ovens, and into their kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause the frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs in the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying when I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So he, Pharaoh, said, Tomorrow. And he said, Let it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you and from your house, from your servants and from your people, and they shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, and out of the courtyards, and out of the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them, as the Lord had said. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land, so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. Quite a story. Um, if you don't believe that God's real, you may doubt the truth of the story. But if you do believe God's real, then nothing in here is really surprising. So I hope that handles all the apologetical um, disputes over whether this is true or not. If God's real, it's easy to believe. If God's not real, it's probably fake. We're going to start with the assumption that God is real. And see that it's showing us who God is. <clears throat> so one of the interesting things about Pharaoh is we think of Pharaoh, because this was sort of like three, 4,000 years ago, ancient world has nothing to do with us, except Pharaoh is pretty modern in one sense. See, modern, when, when Moses comes to Aaron, or to the Pharaoh and says, the Lord said to do this, and Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? He wasn't saying, I don't believe in God. He wasn't saying, I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. He was saying, which God are you talking about? He was saying, I have my gods, and I have my truth, and you have your gods and your truth. And I'm not familiar with who yours are. And since I don't know them, I don't really think I should have to listen to them. See, Moses was a religious pluralist. That means he thought there were different ways to do things, and that they were all okay. He was saying to, Pharaoh was saying to Moses, you can't come in here and tell me how to believe. I have my own set of beliefs, and you can't come in here and push your beliefs on me. Who is this God that you're speaking of that I should obey them? I have my own God. So what the plagues are doing is saying to Pharaoh, yes, you do have your own gods, but they're the wrong gods. 
And that there's no one, it says here, there's no one like the God of the Hebrews. There's no one like the Lord. So what this passage is showing us is that the Lord God, the Jehovah God, is powerful and unique. That's obvious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, unless you don't want to believe it, because that means powerful and unique gods, a God who's powerful and unique has to be obeyed in a different way than everything else. It has a special hold on your life. God's power has a special hold on your life. So when Pharaoh says, who is the Lord, he was saying, I don't like the idea of some other person telling me what to do that I didn't choose. So you come in here and tell me I have to do this, but I've got my own way of doing things. And so what the plagues are doing is one by one, I think there's like 113 Egyptian gods. So the plague you're doing is, is the Lord God basically taking them all down one by one. So if you've ever seen a picture of Egypt, I'm not so sure what it's like now, but definitely in the ancient world, you've got a big country of Egypt, and everyone lives along one place. They all live next to the river. And the rest of the place is a desert. Is it still that way? I know they've done some irrigation and things like that, but basically everyone lives next to the river because the rest of the country is a desert. And Egypt was, was, one of the, was probably the most powerful nation for about 3,000 years because they lived next to this river. And the river provided plenty of food, provided protection, it provided life to them. So much so that they deified it. It was one of their gods. So what's the first thing God does? He says, oh, this is one of your gods? This is what brings life? Watch what I can do to that. So he's slowly saying, over this period of time with all these ten plagues eventually, let me show you how I'm better than all of your gods individually. Even the frogs, the, the goddess of fertility was a person with a frog head in Egypt. You can find pictures of it. So what does God do? He's like, let me take some frogs and overwhelm you so much and then get rid of them. And he says, so that you know there's no one like the Lord. Your frog God is not like me. I control everything. With the gnats, even the dust of the ground God controls. <clears throat> so God's making a point here in a very specific way to a very specific people. He's saying, let me show my power over these different religious orders that you have so that you can know that I'm powerful and unique. We'll make an application to that because none of us worship the frog god, do we? We'll get there. So when he says God's powerful, and he's not really happy with Egypt, right? Because Egypt has enslaved his people. So what's the response? He says, I will judge Egypt. But look at the judgments. Okay, they're bad. So the, the, the main source of water in your town turns to blood. How does that affect your life? Have you ever been to a country that doesn't have clean water? It makes life hard, doesn't it? There's no bottled water back then. There's no Brita filters, none of that. So when he strikes the water, everyone's affected. It changes the way they do things. But it's only for a week. So this first judgment of a slave-holding oppressive, murderous, genocidal nation is what? They've got to dig for water for a week. It's not that bad, is it? Why? Look at the second one, frogs. There's frogs everywhere. Okay, that's a pain in the neck, isn't it? Having frogs everywhere. But it's, no one's dying. What's happening? God is judging them, yes, but he's doing them in the softest way possible. He's, doing, he's, he's got the lightest touch he can possibly do and still get their attention. 
He's like, I'm not going to kill anybody. You see, God has the power to wipe them out. And he's done so in the past. He does so later in the Bible. There's a place where he takes an angel and wipes out an entire army overnight. No warnings, no plagues, no signs. He just kills them all because they're trying to destroy his people. He doesn't do that here. He's merciful in his judgment. He gives them multiple chances. Okay, did Pharaoh know what he was doing was wrong? Moses says, God said to do this. Moses says, uh, Pharaoh says, no. That's it, right? There's no dialogue. So why does God come back with the Nile, then the frogs, then the gnats, or the lice? What's happening here? God is saying, I'll give you another chance. Now, we know that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardens his own heart, but there's a lot of other people that see these things. The entire country is judged. The Egyptians are having time and time again to repent, to change. God is saying, you are dead wrong and you deserve to die. But I'm not going to kill you yet. I'm going to give you ten chances. So he says, I'll, I'll destroy your river for a week. That didn't get your attention? Fine, I'll send frogs into your house. That didn't get your attention? I'll send lice, gnats, mosquitoes to cover everything. In other words, God's like, you ever talk to your kids and they don't pay attention to you? What do you do? You're like, hey, pay attention. I, I probably should do that to you sometimes. <laughs> like, hey, this is more important than Facebook. That's what God's doing to the Egyptians. Except the Egyptians are killing people. You see God's mercy? See, mercy is nothing when the person's not that bad. When you get your kids' attention, it's not that big of a deal because your kids are not doing that, anything that bad. Maybe they're breaking something or hitting somebody. These people are murdering, enslaving, destroying. And God's still like, hey, one more time, pay attention. Have you ever heard that people say, I follow the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament? The God of the New Testament is loving, Jesus is love, but the God of the Old Testament, it's all judgment and harshness and wrath. Have you heard that? That's because they haven't read the Old Testament. What does this passage tell you about God? God dealing with a wicked and evil people by anyone's standards, modern or ancient, he's not destroying them. He's warning them. He's saying, pay attention. Here's another chance. Here's some mercy. Here's some graciousness. And so the, the multiple accounts of these judgments are the nicest way you can judge somebody by giving them a chance. And we'll see next week and later, they took the chance. A lot of Egyptians took the chance. They actually left with the Israelites. So God is giving them a chance to repent and come back. They're very soft plagues. But also what he's doing, he's being very clear in who he is. You see, the first plague, the Nile, you notice what the magicians do here? God turns the Nile into blood. What do the magicians do? They do the same thing. How'd they do it? A lot of the commentaries say they did like sort of an illusion where they put something in the water. I don't see why we need to say that. I think they just use magical powers to change water into blood. That's what the Bible says. I think they had magic powers. Now, where'd they get them from? That's a different story. They didn't get them from God. And since they were opposing God, I think it's, you can narrow it down to they got them from Satan. But they still did it. Now, they didn't do it to the extent that God did. Okay, and then the frogs come along. God makes frogs come everywhere. Guess what the magicians did? He says, by their enchantments, they also brought frogs up. And Moses and Pharaoh's like, okay, well, my people can do this too. Then what'd God do? He says, but you can't get rid of the frogs, can you? So I'll do that so you can know who I am. Then he brings up the gnats, the mosquitoes, the lice. And guess what the magicians can't do? Why didn't God start with that? 
Why didn't he just start with something that the magicians couldn't reproduce? Because he wanted to be very clear that he was better than they were. And so he walked them down this path until they couldn't deny it. So at the, at the end, even the magicians, who I believe are satanic uh, black magic wielders, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't deny it. The people who are opposing God say, even we can't deny it. God is saying, I want to make this so clear to you that no one can deny that I'm doing this. And so the revelation is clear. What's the point of this whole text? What's, what's God doing here? What does he want? He wants you to know who he is so that you worship him. He wanted Pharaoh, and he wanted the Egyptian people, to worship him, not the river. To worship him, not the goddess of fertility. To worship him, not the magicians, and not the powers that were running things. None of us are worshiping river gods, are we? Do we need God to come to our life and destroy our little God? Or can we look back and see what he already did? This is a warning. It really happened. They were worshiping the wrong gods and God defeated them. And then he wrote it down so that we could read it and make the application. You see, that's a, that's a mercy right there. He's saying, I'm not going to pollute your personal God, your river, whatever that is you're supposed to be using for my glory, but you're using it to worship. I'm not going to turn that into blood. I'm not going to send frogs into your house. I'm going to tell you a story about where I already did it so that you can read it, believe it, and follow it. That's what's happening here. We don't worship these gods. We worship other gods. And so this story is to say, believe their experience or you have to learn your own experience. It's a warning. It's Moses going to Pharaoh and saying, do this or God's going to punish you. That's when Pharaoh should have said, whoa, I don't want that. Leave. I was wrong. Leave. He didn't. You're in the same spot. You're hearing God's word right now. You're being warned. And what, you're, what we could say is, this has nothing to do with me. I promise not to worship the river God. I won't worship the goddess of fertility. I won't do black magic. And miss the whole point. If God is more powerful than the river Nile, what else is he more powerful than? If he can bring mosquitoes out of dust, you should worship him. Because all the stuff in our lives is much smaller than that. But what happens? You see, this text doesn't just tell us who God is. It also reveals who man is. See, when God acts, it brings out the truth in man. Man can sort of live his life in disguise, until God acts. And so when God acts, Pharaoh is sort of this typical, he's unnamed, he doesn't have a name, he's just sort of a symbol of those who oppose God. And what do they do? What does this text tell us about people? That the real problem is your heart. So Pharaoh's response to all these different plagues shows who he truly is on the inside. And in, in doing so, he shows us who we are on the inside. First of all, what we see about man, you realize how, you see how dependent they are in their environment? How contingent their life is on the creation around them? That hasn't changed. Has anyone noticed how cold it is outside? Has your life changed because the temperature outside dropped? Yes. Pretend like it's not cold and see what happens. 
uh, pretend like storms don't matter and see what happens. Right? We have to alter our lives because of the weather. You change something in our environment, our physical environment, and our life changes. We, the modern scientific people. What God's showing the Egyptians and showing us is all he has to do is take his hand off something for a little bit and their life falls apart. The frogs, perfect example. Is anyone afraid of frogs? <laughs> you are? Okay, that would be a terrible plague for you then. Um, this would be like a nightmare. <laughs> if I could have nightmares later. Uh, okay, but most people are not afraid of frogs. They're sort of like funny, you know, they make kids' characters out of them. But the minute there are too many frogs... That's the end. So when he, with these frogs, they're everywhere. Do you see how, how much they're everywhere? And it says, and the frogs shall come uh, into your house, into your bedroom, into your bed. Have you ever rolled over on a frog? Here's the thing about the Egyptians. They slept on the floor. They didn't have raised beds. Uh, it says, in, into your house of your servants, on your people. They also walked around barefoot which means they were stepping on frogs. Have you ever stepped on a frog? Imagine your life if every day you were stepping on frogs to go to the bathroom to get a glass of water. Can you imagine how that would change everything? You're laying in bed and there's like frogs jumping on you. But it gets worse. (laughs) On your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls, you are drinking a cup of tea and a frog jumps in it. Or worse... It had already jumped into it, and you didn't know it until after you drank it. That's exactly what happened. It was jumping into their food. The frogs were in their food. So this little funny, cute animal ruins their life. Mosquitoes. The next one's mosquitoes. Um, or gnats, maybe, or lice. Pretty much the most insignificant creature you could have until you get swarmed by them. Then your life's over. All God has to do is just pull back a little bit, release his power. You see, it's the anti-creation. What happened in the creation story? God divides, God separates, God orders. What's happening here? Disorder. Out of control. Chaos. Nature unleashed. You ever watch the Weather Channel? Nature unleashed. Terrible things are happening. That should warn us that our life is contingent on the environment around us. But what do we do? We have a little bit of control. And you can see that they had a little control here. The magicians could change the environment. They could bring up frogs. They could dig wells. Just enough to deceive themselves. You could say, the weather doesn't bother me. I'll just turn the heat on. Just enough control to think that you're in control. Just enough control to say, I don't really need God that much. I'm okay. And so Pharaoh's heart is hardened because of it. If you think your life's going to be okay, you're deceiving yourself. And it's going to take one fallen tree, one icy patch on the road, one bad storm, one electrical outage, and you could be dead. That's it. With all the scientific modern technology we have, you'll be dead. Your life is as a vapor. And God's showing the Egyptians that, and he's showing us that. And what's the reaction? You see, if if Pharaoh had understood this, he'd have a different reaction. But but his heart is revealed here. It shows us that your behavior comes from your heart. In in chapter 7, verse 22, God turns the river into blood. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went to his house, 
Neither was his heart moved by this. Did he see the river turn to blood? Did he know that something bad had happened? But his heart made the decisions for it. What is his heart? It's that, it's that part of you that's not really affected by your brain, that does what it wants to do. When you say, I want this, that's your heart speaking. And that's what happens in, in Pharaoh's life. And that's what God's showing us. All your decisions are coming out of your heart, not your environment. They're coming out of your heart. And so Pharaoh's heart is revealed by the environment. So the basic life problem, so the basic problem for Pharaoh is not the Nile, it's not the frogs. His basic problem is his heart. Same, same with us. We don't need the Nile River. We don't need frogs. We don't need plagues to have the same problem. We have the same heart. We all were born of the same parents. We all came from Adam and Eve. The same heart that, that Pharaoh has, we have. So what's your basic problem in this life? Do you think it's your bank account? Do you think it's your relationships? Do you think it's your environment? It's not. It's your heart. Your basic life problem is yourself. And that's what this, this is showing us. It's taking the problem to the very core so that we can read it and believe it and apply it and say our problem is the core of who we are. We are the problem. There's a poem by uh, a guy named Henley called Invictus. Very motivating, very stirring. It says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Doesn't that just stir you? Doesn't that stir your heart? Yeah, I think Pharaoh actually wrote this. Right? He says, you can punish me and you can change things. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I decide what happens. Right? Like, like uh, Sinatra said, I did it my way. At the end of my life, I can say, I did it my way. We all want that. We all want to be inspired to do it our way, to be our true self, to follow your heart. Follow your dreams, right? The Bible's saying that's the problem. What everyone else is telling you is the solution, to follow your heart, follow your dreams, be yourself. The Bible's saying that's your problem. You see how it turns everything upside down? We are the problem. And so as the plays continue, you see how Pharaoh's heart's affected. The, the frogs come. And even though the magicians could reproduce the frogs, now Pharaoh has frogs in his bed and in his food. And Pharaoh's like, dude, I'm done with this. God's real. Okay, God's real. I believe him. I believe he's doing this. So he says to Moses, and then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and my people. And I'll let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Victory, right? Victory. God got what he wanted. Pharaoh changed, and he's going to let the people go. But what really happened? Look down at verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them. See, his heart never changed. Pressure around you can change your behavior. It can change your mind. You put pressure on people, and they'll change. Have you heard the term, there's no atheist in a foxhole? Same thing. Pharaoh's in a foxhole. And he's like, God, help me. But what happens when you get the atheist out of a foxhole? Still an atheist. When you get Pharaoh out of the foxhole, when you get the frogs out of Pharaoh's house, Pharaoh's heart is still hard. So when your behavior, when your environment changes your behavior, the only thing that needs to, to, to go back is the pressure is removed and your heart is still wrong. 
Think about that when you're raising kids, when you're dealing with your parents, when you're dealing with your work coworkers. You can change behavior. You can change Pharaoh's behavior with pressure. But remove the pressure, and the source is still there. If you think doing good things is going to make you a good person, you're not getting the point of this passage. You're missing it totally. Doing good things is outward behavior. People with bad hearts can do good things. Wicked people can do good things. It doesn't make them good people. And so that's what Pharaoh did. <laughs> this guy, uh, Paul David Tripp, gives an illustration of an apple tree that he had that kept him producing like really shriveled up, terrible apples. So he had an idea. I'm sure this is not true. That he went and bought good apples and a staple gun, pulled all the bad apples off and stapled the good apples up there. Problem solved, right? He says, if a tree produces bad, of course it doesn't work. What happens? If a tree produces bad apples year after year, there is something drastically wrong with its system, down to its very roots. I won't solve the problem by stapling new apples onto the branches. They will also rot, because they are not attached to a life-giving root system. And next spring, I'll get the same problem again. I'll not see a new crop of healthy apples, because my solution has not gone to the heart of the problem. If the tree's roots remain unchanged, it will never produce good apples. If your heart remains unchanged, you won't produce good apples. Now, you can staple good works on your life, but the problem hasn't changed, and the good works will rot. You can do more good things. It's stapling good apples to a bad tree. You see how Christian, Christianity turns everything upside down? Every other religion says, be good, follow the path, do right, seek nirvana, seek enlightenment, seek submission, seek obedience. A good Buddhist is someone who worked at being a good Buddhist. A good Muslim is someone who worked at being a good Muslim. Not so with Christianity. Christianity says you can do all the good works in the world, your heart is still rotten. What needs to happen? Pharaoh needs a new heart. And once the pressure is removed, it's obvious. So what God does here in the next one with the lice, he gives the lice, the magicians could not reproduce it. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. You ever talk to someone who doesn't believe in God and you're like, I wish that you could just see a miracle and then you would have to believe. If you could just see the miracles, if you could see this happen, then you would believe. If you were there on the banks of the Nile, you'd believe that Exodus was true. And so our life is revolved around giving that evidence, giving that argument, giving the good, compelling reason to believe and wishing that God would somehow come down again and show that he's real. This is saying... Pharaoh saw the evidence. His own people told him it was true. And he says, I don't care. I believe it's true. I just don't care. You see how damning your heart is? You can have all the evidence laid out before you, and you can believe it. It doesn't matter, because you don't want it. So the core of the problem is not knowing what's right. It's not knowing what's true. It's do you want it? Is your heart desiring what's good? As we can see, the evidence doesn't change the heart. So what do you do about it? If your heart's bad, then you can't do any more good works. You can't staple any more good, bad, good apples to your bad tree. What do you do? You listen to what's being said. The word changes you. You listen and say, I believe it's true that God is superior to me. What are you worshiping? Here's some tests for you. What doesn't get canceled during your week? Where's your order of cancelization? Right? Some things don't get canceled, do they? 
other things do. Let's make it even more practical. Are you supposed to meet with people for discipleship? That gets canceled first, doesn't it? Not work. You're like, well, I have to go to work. Do you have to go to work? Well, I can't eat. Man, Jesus said something about that. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We worship what we think will make us happy. And we can't conceive of a life where we're not working, where we don't have social media. I mean, the act of, of your phone is actually an act of worship. Watch yourself bow before it. Watch yourself compulsively check it. You can't give it up, can you? You'd sooner die than leave your phone at home. You'll be late for work. Well, some of you can't take your phone to work, which is maybe God's grace on you. <laughs> How many of you have turned around to go back and get your phone? How many of you have stayed up with anxiety because something was posted on social media? How many of you have stayed up with anxiety because of your work? How many of you cancel spiritual things for secular things? You are as much of an idol worshiper as the Egyptians bowing before the river. You, we just have smaller personal gods. We don't have big gods. We have little gods. We have the god of social media. We have the god of approval. We have the god of money. We have the god of family. They're little gods, and no one really sees them. They're just as wicked as the frog god. They're just as wicked as bowing before a stone idol, before sacrificing your child to Molech, as the Bible says. You're like, ah, it's not that bad. That's because you don't understand who God is. God is powerful and unique above everything. And every time you stick something in front of him, it's terrible. It's idol worship. You put your phone in front of God. You put your work in front of God. That's what this pat. So you need to see who we are. You need to see who you are. You're just as bad as Pharaoh. I'm just as bad as Pharaoh. My heart's as bad as Pharaoh's. The problem is still the heart, not the external stuff. So what's the answer? God comes down to us. Moses wasn't Pharaoh wasn't looking for God, so God went and look went and looked for Pharaoh. The Egyptians didn't seek God, so God sought the Egyptians. We're not seeking God. God's seeking us. God showed his revelation to the people of Egypt. And then he showed it to us again in Christ. Christ is the full revelation of God. What you think was impressive with the River Nile was nothing compared to Christ coming down to this earth. But the purpose was the same. Who is the Lord? Who is God? It's the God who punishes, but it's the God who comes down to us. The merciful God. We see in Christ that he's loving. God is loving. God is faithful. God is pursuing us. God is powerful. God is dying. God punished the Egyptians, didn't he? But then he punished Jesus. That's what the cross was. The cross were the plagues on Christ. Why? So that we would listen. So that we would turn to God. We couldn't do it. Our heart was bad, so God came to us. God died in front of us to save us. This isn't just some story about a bunch of ancient people doing weird stuff with the nature. This is about God coming down to save you from yourself. Not from your work. Not from your boss or your family. From you. From your idol-worshiping heart. So what does God want? He just wants you to admit it. He wants you to say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. 
save me. God, you're so powerful and I'm so wicked, I can't do a thing about it. Save me. That's it. You see the offer here? The God that's going to wipe out the Egyptians is saying, if you'll just admit you're wrong and give up everything and just ask me to save you, I'll do it. I'll save you completely. Do you believe it? Do you need more examples? God gave you examples here. God has revealed himself to us as a powerful, just, loving God. And then again, when Christ died on the cross, repent and believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that we would believe it, that we would know that it's true, that it's the account of what actually happened, but also that it expresses deeper truths about who you are and who we are. Pray that we would confront our idols, recognize our control over us, recognize how our heart is always creating new ones, and not try to change, but repent and believe, and pray that you would save us, trusting your promise that if we confess with our mouths, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that you